if you're able to meet somewhere in the middle, you guys can still share the risk and you don't necessarily have to pull the trigger completely. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today I'm excited to have a conversation again dealing with hospital-based financial arrangements. But before I dig in, I want to introduce my two guests today. Both are from HMS Valuation Partners. And the first person speaking, he was on the podcast before, so he's a veteran of Stark Integrity. So I'll turn it over uh, to Joe Aguilar to uh, introduce himself as well as the firm. Well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate uh, you having us on again. Um, as I mentioned, uh, my name is Joe Aguilar. I have uh, been working in healthcare evaluation consulting for now 30 plus years. Um, my specialty has primarily been in physician compensation as well as physician hospital alignment arrangements, whether that be for joint venture, employment, acquisition type of work. As a firm, um, we've been around for 27 years. So the lion's share of my career has been with HMS Valuation Partners. We focus really across the entire spectrum from compensation work to hospital-based arrangements to real estate, uh, medical timeshares, um, as well as fixed asset opinions. And I'm glad to have my partner join as well. Uh, her name is uh, Natalie Bell. Natalie, I'll let you introduce yourself. So um, again, my name is Natalie Bell. I'm with HMS and one of the partners here. And um, I am on the physician compensation side as well. So that's um, the employment agreements, acquisitions, um, as well as hospital coverage arrangements. Sounds great. And just a point of reference for the Stark Integrity listeners, uh, Joe and I recorded an episode on Stark Integrity called Hospital-Based Financial Arrangements, and that was on October the 31st, 2023. So you may want to listen to that one first uh, before you listen to this episode, because yeah, that we kind of we talked a lot about the nuts and bolts of how we develop physician compensation arrangements where stipends are involved for hospital based financial arrangements. But this one is a little bit different of a twist. In, in that the previous episode, this basically was contracting with independent third parties to provide hospital-based services like emergency medicine, anesthesia, radiology, and the like. And uh, Joe and I talked before about the increasing stipends that are being requested by physician groups in order to provide hospital-based services. And we've seen over the past five to 10 years that it's increasing to the point that hospitals may want to try to, I guess what a lot of executives call home grow uh, their own uh, set mm -hmm. of services. 
So, I mean, first off, I'm going to ask you whether or not that trend, you're seeing the same trend. But secondly, is what should hospitals be uh, looking for in order to make that decision if they're going to employ their own group? Yeah, so so to answer your first question, yes. Um, I mean, we've been seeing it really inch up and up over the last five to 10 years. Different markets, different specialties, different clients uh, um, reaching a tipping point sooner than later. Um, so what made me think about entertaining this is we've been seeing that tipping point reaching a lot more. It's really one of those things where um, it's not a one size fits all, but it's certainly a thought that our hospital clients really need to consider as, as they're getting asked to return to the negotiating table more often. So it depends on you know their, their current spend, uh, where that is, the specialty, the local market factors, reimbursement, uh, resources to onboard and manage the services, which is one of those last things that have really got our hospital clients' attention. But that's really some of the decisions that need to be thought about. Natalie, I'm not sure what you're seeing in anesthesia specifically to add. Yeah, well, in addition to the spend, it's also a matter of the bandwidth of available providers. So you've got those specialties where there's a great deal of demand right now and just not enough providers to go around. And so um, whenever you've got that situation, you've also got to think about your ability to scale and um, if you're in a position to be able to retain and attract enough providers um, in that demanding field to keep your program covered. Yeah. And as Joe and I talked about it during the last podcast episode, you have to, before you even start talking about a stipend, you need to understand what the collections are for the group. And uh, as Joe and I said that during the last one, a lot of times you ask that question, they will say, well, it's none of your business. And, you know, <laughs> and, I, and a lot of times said, well, then you don't get a stipend because you start with the premise that it's zero because we're giving you the exclusive franchise doctors and you have to prove to us that a stipend is even warranted. So, but it's, it's more than just, you know, the evaluation of the financial arrangement. It's also, I think, Joe, as you indicated, it's, it's kind of like the burden of the hospital, not only to uh, collect for those services, mm -hmm. but also to manage those services. So is it more than just shifting the burden of reimbursement and staffing challenges to the hospital? It, it is. And, you know, to some degree, the hospitals already had a little bit of that burden, even when they're contracting out, right? So when you're contracting with a group, like you said, you need to know what their reimbursements are. You need to understand if they truly are collecting to the degree they should. Are they managing the revenue cycle appropriately before you even um, consider either side of the equation? You also want to you know, pay attention to the staffing costs. And we've had situations where you know, the hospitals are being asked as a part of their arrangements with contractors to even cover sign-ons or recruiting or retention bonuses. And when the hospitals are having to do that in a contractual arrangement for another party to provide the service, it really does begin to tip over into, you know, okay, well, if we're doing this already, maybe we should be doing it in-house and just do it directly. 
Yeah. And Natalie, you, you focus on one thing that I, I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper on, and that is you know, the extent to which the physician group is collecting, because I think you can get in situations where the physician group, if this is an independent contractor, they're going to say, well, we're going to make it up in the stipend. Um, <laughs> yeah. And what type of controls or recommendations do you have for the listeners with respect to uh, how you evaluate the collections when you're either determining the stipend or to try to think if you want to bring it in-house? Absolutely. So some of the key things that need to be considered are um, the contracts and the reimbursements that they're getting. Uh, so, you know, we all know what the government pays for their services, but, you know, you need to understand what the commercial rates are that they're receiving, because it might be a situation where they just aren't in a good position to leverage and negotiate those contracts, especially if you're dealing with smaller groups. And so, you know, you doing it in-house, you might be in a better position to negotiate it. You also might be in a position to help guide them in their own negotiations to improve reimbursements. Either way, it helps your bottom line. So that's key. The other thing is also sometimes they just really don't know how to, to manage their reimbursement, their collections, their AR, and sometimes they're leaving money on the table in that manner. And so, you know, it's important to fully understand that. And if you've got a group that's not willing to divulge that information, then, you know, that's kind of a red flag that maybe they don't need as much subsidy as they're saying. Because if their number, if they truly are doing everything they're supposed to, then they should have no problem being transparent. Yeah. And I think to, to just a second that I, when we think about the specific metrics that we would recommend to our clients, it would be, you know, things like collections to work RVU, collections to visit numbers, gross collection percentages, paid, uh, you know, adjudicated collection percentages. There are a lot of different metrics that you can use, and it really depends on the specialty, right? You know, because if you think about anesthesia and you can substitute work RVU for ASA units in anesthesia, but um, or when, if you think about emergency medicine, you know, they're getting a lot of the uh, services that they provide they should be getting reimbursed for. But then you think about the laborist, right? The OB laborist, you know, they're providing a service that's under a bundled package that if you're outside of a Medicaid, you're not going to receive any reimbursement. So it's really about delving deeper and making sure that, you know, that, that they are achieving those metrics. And like Natalie said, the contracts are so important. When we've helped some of our clients move um, radiology groups or emergency medicine groups under the hospital umbrella, we've really had to look at those contracts and see, okay, well, we get it. We know what the revenues are on Friday when it's operated by the staff provider, but what is it gonna be like on Monday morning, um, you know, when now you're billing under your um, number and is there gonna be a difference? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it's critical to get that right. Yeah, and so if I'm a hospital chief executive officer and I'm thinking about uh, whether or not to bring the uh, hospital-based service under the hospital's umbrella, uh, as I said before, home grow it uh, versus using an outside source. A lot of times with an outside source, you just you know call up a key person at the outside source and say, okay, I need to have all these operating room staff or what have you. So staffing becomes one of these value key drivers. So I've got, I have like four key drivers I want to ask you guys about. So the first one, let's talk about provider staffing. What should they be contemplating for uh, staffing? Yeah, I mean, I think staffing is critical. So so one of the things that, that that's exactly where we actually like to start, Bob, and, and the reason is because you'll get a pro forma that actually stipulates a certain number of FTEs. 
by the service provider, by the staffing provider. The first is to poke holes in that and determine, does it hold water? Um, because you can have the FTE calculated based on offsite call hours and not just onsite hours. It, it, you know, there's a lot of different things that you can have it calculated based on 2,080 hours at the constitutes an FTE, or if you're doing emergency medicine, it might be 1,600 hours. And so you really want to make sure you understand that very well. So we'll do the same thing that that you, we talked about earlier on the uh, testing out the validity of the collections. We'll do the same thing for the staffing and really look at, OK, well, if we derive staffing in terms of hours or in terms of uh, work RV per provider or visit per provider, ASA per provider, um, you know, what does that look like? Where are they falling on the scale? and then determine if they're right-sized. And not to mention, and, and Natalie could probably share a lot more on this aspect, but not to mention, are they appropriately hiring the right mix of providers? So do you have like a neonatology program for uh, a, a, um, a service line? It really may not necessarily need a neonatologist there 24-7, but could use NNPs there and then with neonatology backup. It's just the right-sizing of the resources for you know, the burden of the program. And, and now that you can share with yeah, these that's absolutely key because um, we have definitely seen arrangements where when we look at how the requirements of what needs to be done for the coverage, we'll see that you might have a group that is choosing to staff it maybe a little bit more MD heavy because they've traditionally had more MDs than they have APPs. And so that's how it works best for them. That's they already have the MDs, so why not use them? But we all know that there are ways you can leverage the APPs and it can be cost savings there. And so uh, just because that's the the way it's been staffed historically, it's good to really look at efficiently staffing this. And, and can we can we rearrange the schedule a bit? Can you change the block scheduling a bit in order to maybe make ORs run a little bit more efficiently or or whatever the service line is? It's really important. And to also see, you know, where where there might be some sharing purposes um, if you've got multiple locations that need to be covered. Yeah, and one point I would make for listeners that currently are using an outside service or group is to try to negotiate that they do not have non-competes with their physician. So that sets up the hospital to be able to home grow it. It's a lot easier if they can hire those individuals. And also I know of one hospital that was really key to have the right physician when they brought, this happens to be a hospitalist group. So they brought, they home grew a hospitalist group, but it was really contingent upon the leader. So they had to, to employ the right leader uh, in order to manage, and this happened to be a physician, uh, to manage that service line. So talk to me a little bit, this is gonna get into my the second question about the uh, the key value drivers. Talk to me a little bit about leadership and then provider compensation as it may relate to that leader as well as just the service line physicians. Oh yeah, so I mean, that's a big one. So, and I always like to, you know, we're from New Orleans, Bob. So the rue is so critical and it's basically what where you start every good dish from New Orleans. So what we consider the rue is that physician leader um, and ma making sure you, you got your key stakeholders on board. And that's on board with the way the program is going to work. So you want them to have an input. And so speaking of compensation, that's a big area to have their input, which is basically making sure that the compensation model aligns with what the organization or what the health system wants out of that service line. So 
we just talked about staffing. We've seen some programs and helped with this where the physicians were actually overworked and understaffed and very frustrated over what was happening because they were also feeling as if they were getting underpaid. I'm thinking of this example where the physician leaders in that particular emergency medicine group really worked well with hospital administration in order to derive a different comp model. Um, and because the hospital was saving a bit on the margin, of course, taking on the risk, they were able to pass a little bit and share that risk in comp with the emergency medicine physicians. And everybody came out of that a bit happier in the end. But uh, Natalie. Yeah, no, I think that that definitely important to talk to those key leaders. And depending on the makeup of the entity that you've been contracting with can make a big difference, too, because um, you can have key physicians who are staffing a program, running the program, but they might not necessarily be um, key players within the organization that employs them. And so sometimes you can find that, you know, their compensation structure with their current employer is set up such that they aren't really um, seeing the value in the services they're providing, such as call or directorships or whatever other pieces are related to the services they're providing outside of direct care. And um, you can often um, structure it by bringing them in-house in a way where they actually feel like they're being valued and the services they're getting, they can see the dollars related to that. And it can be a big plus. Yeah, and then still dealing with the compensation, we just have to evaluate all the compensation components from a fair market value and commercial reasonableness perspective. And I think like if you have a private group that they're owners of the private group versus a staffing agency, there may be some other business lines where they're receiving additional compensation when they come mm -hmm. in as an employee they may not be able to receive the same level of compensation because those service lines may not exist anymore. So there's a lot of those facts and circumstances that have to go into play that I'm sure you guys have faced. Uh, you can talk about that, but also want to talk, have you talk a little bit about the revenue cycle management, because as we know, everything's about the green thing, uh, the dollar thing. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I mean, I think managing the collection process is is so critical. I think we touched upon that earlier, um, but it also starts with the contracts and really understanding and not assuming that the revenue that you're seeing from either their billing reports or their pro forma are are going to translate over equally. That we've seen both cases. There, we've seen well, we've seen three cases: um, high, right at the same amount, and low. Um, depending on 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 the circumstance and the contracts that have been negotiated to date, so that's that's number one. And so the second thing is to make sure that you have in place the right people to be able to actually bill and collect. I mean, billing and collecting for hospital-based specialties is a bit different and nuanced than it is for billing for a surgeon or for a neurologist or any of the other outpatient specialties. So. Being cognizant of that and ha having the appropriate coders with the appropriate expertise ready to go is, is um, I think, key to ensuring that you don't have a hiccup in that the green, as you put it, Bob. Yes. And also, I guess, the auditing and monitoring of the physician's documentation, because when they're in private practice, if they, if they were, they're obviously very focused on that. And once they become a W-2 employee, they may not be as, as aggressive. <laughs> Well, and that gets to, aggressive, not bad aggressive. <laughs> absolutely. And, and I mean, that gets to that starting off on the right foot, you know, making sure that you're preparing everybody. And then we, we and then when you think about the nuances, we, you know, we didn't touch upon this. And I think it's a topic for another 
and I know you've had some of these topics, but even on the APPs and what are you going to do with the APPs in the hospital-based setting, it, there are just a lot of little nuances that you just need to make sure that you have ironed out. I was just going to say another piece of that is um, often even when they are a private practice, they don't always, as much as they pay attention to what's coming in their paycheck, they don't always really fully um, have the reporting in place. Their billing reports may not necessarily reflect what's actually hitting their bank accounts. Um, and it's it's not that anybody's intentionally misreporting. It's just a lack of sophistication. I mean, you know, not every physician or practice um, has a finance background or has a practice manager that really understands the reporting. Um, we had one group recently that um, they all they paid attention to was the revenue hitting their checking account. Um, they weren't really paying attention to the fact that it didn't reconcile at all to their billing reports. Um, and so those billing reports weren't necessarily um, as valid and accurate as you would hope. And so teasing out those pieces are, are really key because you can't just assume that the practice is um, is running as cleanly as you would hope. Yeah, so some due diligence is definitely required before you, you know, pull the trigger on this one. Last category for key value drivers is our operating costs. So, so how do those factor in? It's kind of everything that we just talked about. Um, but I think the the area that I that we haven't talked about is that that provider compensation specialist, you know, that that individual that is overseeing the management of all the physicians within the health system. Now what's happening is they're now adding 10, 20, 30 different other specialists that really don't, again, operate the same way, scheduling-wise, billing-wise, uh, in general. And so that adds, you're going to add um, some extra cost there just in having boots on the ground uh, to manage the day-to-day. -day. Um, so I, I think that it, while it's, you don't think of hospital-based specialties generating a really high overhead, um, there still is some incidental costs that need to be considered. Yeah. On the other side, you've also got if you've been contracting with a large group, you know, one of these really like multi-regional groups, um, they can have a lot of built-in margin um, in their cost structure that um, is a lot higher because, you know, they're in it to make a profit, right? Um, and that can often be dollars that it looks as if on the surface contracting with someone else that a huge stipend or subsidy is needed, but bringing it in-house, you don't, that's not really a cost that's going to happen when you bring it in. Also, the billing and collections, you can have some groups that are paying a lot more here than they need to just because they don't have the in-house expertise, and obviously your facilities do. And so there also can be some savings there. So in some cases, you actually can save a lot operationally by bringing in-house, but like Joe said, in other cases, it might not be as much of a savings as you'd expect. Yeah, so I can definitely see that a for-profit entity, the you know, national practices, there are a few of them out there, uh, mm -hmm. they definitely build in a, a, a margin that possibly could be captured, but then the administrative burden then flips over to the hospital. You've got to be prepared for all those things. Well, this has been a great conversation. So we've come to our, the time of this episode for the Captain Integrity Punch Point. So I'll turn it over to both of you for our takeaways for today. So I think one of the key ones is just you've got to do the, the math in it. Uh, every situation is a little different. You've got to pay attention to each. And even within the same hospital, bringing one service line in-house may be uh, advantageous, whereas another one might not be. And you have to just look at each one and assess each risk individually. I think the second one is consider sharing the risk. If you've gotten to the point or you're getting to the point where you're considering homegrown growing 
the specialty, do that math that Natalie mentioned and know where your tipping point is, because ultimately it's not without a risk for the health system to take on the the burden of the staffing and, and the reimbursement. And, you know, the staffing firms know that challenge firsthand. So if you're able to meet somewhere in the middle, you guys can still share the risk and you don't necessarily have to pull the trigger completely um, to, to do it in-house. And then the last one, once you take the leap, address all the things that we mentioned. M make sure that you have a plan for the staffing and you're fully aware of exactly what you need covered, who's going to be covering it, um, how they're going to get paid, what model is, is most advantageous to ensure that, that the alignment of incentives are moving in the same direction. Um, and don't forget um, about, you know, analyzing your contracts, expectations on, on revenue and reimbursement, as well as any um, incidental costs that you're going to need to add or, or consider when you're bringing them in-house. Yeah, so stipends are not the only way to do this. <laughs> I think it's a bottom line here. Well, well, Joe and Natalie, greatly appreciate it. Uh, would you provide the uh, Stark Integrity listeners with your contact information? So, Joe, could you go first? Absolutely. Uh, so I can be reached um, at uh, 678-984-6435. That's my direct line. Or you can email me at joe, J-O-E, period, Aguilar, A-G-U-I-L-A-R, at H-M-S-Value.com. Thanks, Joe. Natalie? And my contact number is 251-472-5536. And the email is Natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, dot bell at hmsvalue.com. Oh, thank you. And thank you both for participating. And uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy this episode and we'll have to collaborate on another one. So thank you. Definitely. Thank you, Bob. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.